This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I understand that as a voter here in this province, it can be awfully confusing. It seems almost every hour you hear results of a different poll that's being done. There is some consistency to them, but there's some anomalies, and then you have to wonder, well, what about the area of the province in which I live? Is, is, is that relative to what's going on here? Who should I vote for? And on and on it goes. And with these public opinion polls showing that uh, the PC party is favored to become the new government, there are some interesting trends that are happening. And uh, thankfully, you don't have to do all that research because uh, the good folks up at uh, Werfel Laurier University do that for us. It's called the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy. And uh, they've come out with uh, their uh, their uh, basically a report on on the, on the numbers. I, I, I want to bring Barry Kay into the conversation. Uh, Barry is a great guest on the program, of course. Here, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, and uh, has been working very very uh, diligently on this project. Barry, th- first of all, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. A lot of people that that want to get involved in this election uh, are, are suffering from dizziness right now because of all the numbers that are being tossed at them right now. You guys are doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this. Well, we do uh, try to aggregate the various polls. So that, that's quite right. And in fact, uh, public opinion is moving. And indeed, is even though we've just put some fresh numbers on our website that are available this morning, um, I have a hunch that the numbers in the next day or two are going to be even more dramatic. The liberals are slipping. The NDP is coming back um, and is certainly solidly in second place. But the conservatives hold a, uh, a significant lead still, not as high as, the, as it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Conservatives are in first place. We've got them in the low 70s in terms of seats. But um, I, I have a hunch that the momentum is not, uh, is not over. And as more polls come out, I wouldn't be surprised if the next time we do a reiteration of the projection. The numbers, by the way, for people that haven't had a chance to look at it yet, are 72 Conservatives, 30 NDP, 22 Liberals. Um, uh, and we have a map which, in fact, color codes every riding in the province. So there's an awful lot of gray particularly around the, uh, the GTA surrounding Toronto. Um, and that means that although we've sort of called those ridings, uh, many of them are going to be liberal. The fact is they're all within a 5% margin, and the liberals may be poised to lose a lot of those. I wouldn't be surprised if the liberals are down the next time we do this as more polls come out. But you're right, we, uh, we aggregate all the polls that have come out in the last couple of weeks. Um, we, we weight them, and we do a couple of other things, including the fact that the robo-polls get counted less than the, uh, the polls that are done by other methods, because I think, frankly, think they're less reliable, but we still I- include them in our process. And we then project that onto the voting history of each riding, and that's how the color coding of each riding takes place. And, and that's a very important aspect of this, and it's something that I've been talking about on the program ever since the election was called, is, is it's one thing to say, hey, here's a province-wide survey, and, and here's what the numbers look like. But but as we know, it's where those seats are. Uh, and you mentioned the GTA, which is voter-rich uh, and seat-rich, as a matter of fact. Even around the Toronto area itself, I think there's 41 seats that are up for grabs in, in that particular area. And, and that really uh, has been the, the mother load of support for the Liberals in the last two elections. Uh, and it looks like that's slipping away now from your numbers. A lot of those are swing ridings. Um, and frankly, although at the moment it's hard to believe the Conservatives aren't in position to be first, I think the question, if there is more movement in the direction we've seen in the last week or so, that in fact there may become a question as to whether or not, not there's enough support for the Conservatives to have a majority. At the moment, they clearly have a majority. Mm-hmm. But um, momentum um, is a factor in public opinion, and right now it's the NDP that seems to have the bullet that's moving upward, and the other parties are trending downward at least somewhat. Moreover, um, I, I don't want to be too speculative yet, 
But if people ultimately become very concerned about Doug Ford, there's some concern, I don't think it's overwhelming at the moment, that indeed a number of liberals may make the decision that strategically a vote for the NDP, even if they really would prefer the liberals, a vote for the NDP may be the best place to try to block a conservative majority. In any case, um, it's those gray writings around Toronto, including some of which are in Toronto. Scarborough has a fair number, Etobicoke has some as well. But particularly in Mississauga, in Brampton, in New York region, Markham and so forth, that those are the writings that are going to determine whether there's going to be a majority or a minority government. What do, you, do you get that sense? Because there was a story earlier this week, Barry, that uh, made headlines right across the province that there's an anti-Ford movement. Uh, we heard this four years ago that there's an anti-Win movement, too, and it really never did coalesce. But with this movement with the NDP, do you get the sense that people that don't want to see Doug Ford as the premier are starting to think, well, maybe the NDP is the best shot here? Not there yet. Um, not yet. They're yet in significant numbers. Again, when we, you know, to try to characterize the Ontario population as if everybody thinks the same. Of course, that's never the case. Um, I, I, I can imagine it. I don't think it's really there yet. At the moment, the Conservatives are poised to form a majority, uh, but we still have uh, three plus weeks, three and a half weeks, really. I guess in the uh, in the election campaign, or almost three three and a half weeks, um, and indeed we'll see. Doug Ford. Um, is not the most experienced politician. He certainly doesn't have the same kind of handle on policy as the other party leaders do. Nonetheless, we certainly see also perhaps the most profound conclusion to be drawn from this campaign is it's time for a change. You've heard that slogan before. Mm -hmm. The Liberals have been in for 15 years. I'm sure we've talked about that before on the program. Um, I frankly don't think it's there for the Liberals to win this election. I just think people are are through with win, rightly or wrongly. I don't think she's been all that bad a premier, but lots of people do. Um, and that, indeed, uh, the question will then become, what, what is going to be the formulation? Is it going to be conservative or perhaps new democratic? I think that's still very much a stretch. But I think a very real consideration is going to be whether they're going to trust a majority government with um, Doug Ford. He may yet shine. We've had two modest debates. When I say modest, I think the debates were sort of a, the, determined to minimize the audience. One was, in fact, just online, the Northern debate. Yeah. And even the Toronto debate on city television was in fact put in at the dinner hour and put in an, in a venue that I think it was calculated not many people would watch. So the debates have had minimal effect. There's going to be one more significant one toward the end of the campaign, I think, on the 27th. Yeah, that is. That, um, and, but, and that one that one looked pretty interesting. I mean, uh, Farinasa from Global News and, and uh, Steve Pakin are going to be the two moderators on that. Uh, and, and just uh, from what I've heard, the overview on that, it's going to be a much more structured and traditional debate where they, it's going to actually turn up the heat on these uh, three, because uh, you know, the fourth one obviously is not going to be allowed. But uh, for those that are still sitting on the fence, it might be a pretty good barometer as to where they want to go. I think that's a big enchilada, I think. Well, now, again, there's another 10 days between now and then as to uh, what may yet happen. But this notion of slippage away from the liberals especially, but also from the conservatives, seeming to go to the NDP, who'd have thunk it? But the fact is, that's what's been going on. We've seen it before in Ontario back in 1990, um, where in fact uh, the NDP kind of slipped up through the middle because both the liberals and the conservatives at that time were, were, were viewed negatively for different reasons. Now, it was a different time, different leaders to be sure. Uh, but that indeed, the, the one thing that um, uh, Andrea Horvath has going for is, is she's likable. Uh, people have liked people that have never given any thought to voting for the NDP, like uh, Andrea Horvath. In the past, it hasn't really translated into widespread support for her party. But this time, if there is, there's certainly negative feeling toward Win. There seems to perhaps be growing negative feeling toward Ford. He can reverse that, but he has looked up wooden and frankly unknowledgeable about policy in the interaction so far. It's almost like he's he's hiding from the press. 
We'll see. I think that last debate's going to be pivotal in, in determining that. Though. Let me ask you about strategy, Barry. You've been following these and analyzing these things for years now. Uh, and there's two points about the, the progressive conservative thing I want to talk about. First of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've talked to people that have been conservative supporters in this province for many, many years that are very apprehensive about four. They said, you know, they, they were okay with Patrick Brown, thought he was maybe a little bit too radical and moving things to the center. But okay. Uh, when he got blown away, they figured, well, Christine Ehrlich's got to be the next leader, so we're still all right. But they don't like Doug Ford. They just don't like something about this guy, and now they don't know where to go. Uh, and, and that's an interesting little twist on what's going on here. Elliot would have been a much more effective leader. I was surprised as anyone. Um, I think the presence of Donald Trump south of the border as a reminder. And now, in fairness, I don't think um, Ford has all the, uh, the problems that, that um, in my mind, Trump has. A lot of people like Trump, too. Uh, but the fact is, he comes across as a bull in the china shop. He appears wooden in terms of his gestures and his speaking, very much dependent upon a, on a script, on a teleprompter, presumably. Now, he's not unique politically in that regard, but he doesn't come across as effectively, I don't think as effectively as Wynne, I, but I appreciate that Wynne is basically um, past news. I think she's a dead woman walking, pretty much, in politically at this point. Um, it's a matter of whether or not that feeling about Ford, which I presented, may some many people may disagree with, but which I presented. If that catches on, I think we may very well be moving to even more downward momentum for the conservatives, and that's where minority government becomes possible. Uh, look, we're getting ahead of ourselves. In a, in a couple of weeks, we can perhaps speculate about majority or minority. At the moment, this, the numbers still point to a conservative majority government. But you know, there's another element to this that I've noticed in past campaigns, and, and wondering if it's a factor in this one. Uh, the absence of, of a, a platform by the conservatives. I know that there's, he's coming up with promises every day. I'm going to drop hydro rates by 12%. Uh, and, and, you know, when anybody in the media gets an opportunity to ask him a question, which is rare, uh, he doesn't answer it. He, he, there's no answer as to how he's going to do this. You know, he's going to find $6 billion in savings without, you know, losing any jobs. How's he going to do that? Well, he's not answering that. At least, it, for instance, you may not have liked the common sense revolution that Mike Harris had in 1995, but there was a book. And you could say, well, here, it's on page 18. This is how we're going to do it. You may not have liked it, but at least there's a reference point. The fact that there's nothing here for people to hang on to, is that be a factor here where they're going to say, I don't know if I can trust this guy? I think Ford's vulnerable. Um, and, you know, again, going back, I think the party made a mistake uh, by selecting him over Elliott, who had much more political jobs. Look, the, the NDP and the liberals have things to, to be criticized as well. They become very generous in terms of all the promises they're making. Many of programs that I personally am sympathetic to with regard to pharmacare and dentacare and, and so forth, childcare, all those sound great. But I'm not sure that they have been costed effectively either. But so long as the conservatives are on the defensive and the conservatives are, are unable to really answer basic questions as to where the cuts are coming from to pay for the tax cuts, that's the one thing that Ford has promised. Um, I think that it's going to be very difficult for Ford to effectively go on the attack on the vulnerabilities of the other parties. Well, there was a theory that was going around from a, a longtime political friend of mine who, who told me, before they even cast a vote in the PC leadership uh, race that, that Saturday in Markham, said this is the Conservative Party's election to lose. I mean, uh, and he says if they pick the wrong leader, that could be the first step in them losing it. And, and I'm wondering if that's what's going on here. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not predicting their demise right now, but uh, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're not 
rising, and that, that, that can be problematic for a party. Frankly, they'd have been better off with Fideli, who at the time when he volunteered to sort of lead the party, I think he thought he was going to lead the party into the next election. If Fideli was the leader, if Elliot was the leader, I don't think the conservatives would be facing these problems. But the fact is, people do focus on the leader, and um, I think Doug Ford has, he just doesn't have the political experience or chops. He, uh, he's been a, uh, an alderman in the city of Toronto, and he's certainly been a, uh, an advisor to, um, to his brother Rob, although that wasn't the most smoothly organized uh, may- mayoralty in Toronto either. Uh, but that indeed at the provincial level, I just think he, he is not nearly as experienced. But more importantly than that, perhaps, because he's not the first politician to be out of his depth. But it, the fact is, it, it, it's, he doesn't have good instincts. Um, and he does not seem to be particularly well advised. He's already made mistakes with regard to the green belt. Um, the comment, uh, unthinkingly, I, I think I'm not sure it's critical, but suggesting that indeed, uh, because in northern communities, not not perhaps this part of the province, northern communities, they really need immigrants and people to, to they're 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 short of short of workers, they're short of people. And his his comments in that northern debate, I gather, didn't hear the debate, but that that's been reported uh, suggested that he was insensitive to that issue. He does not have good political instincts. He does not come across effectively on television, fairly or not. Uh, you know that that seems to be the image. And I think that's part of the reason we are starting to see that downward movement. I want to emphasize, though, at the moment, it still looks like a conservative majority. Mm-hmm. But we've got another three weeks or so plus of, of polls that are going to be perhaps able to indicate just where things are going. But on that point, as you've talked to us in the past, Barry, uh, this is about the time, about two and a half, three weeks before the vote, that an awful lot of people start paying attention. Yep. And uh, they, in other words, what happened before that is, is, is prologue. They don't know. They don't care. They're just opening the paper today and listening to the radio and said, you know, I, I should pay attention and find out where I'm going to go. Oh, look, this is a close election. I agree. I agree. And I come back to the fact that I have a hunch. We still have, uh, you know, 10 days between now and the debate. 11 days, I guess. Uh, today is the 16th. But uh, that indeed, I think um, Ford's performance in that debate is going to be absolutely critical. Uh, and as I say, that's going to be an interesting format for that, too, total stuff that's going on. I, and I, I, I want to emphasize that the point that you made right off the top here for folks that are, are listening to our conversation. Uh, these numbers, even the ones that we talked about this morning, are, are snapshot of today. Uh, that could change that's in 24 sh- hours. snapshot of, of the last few days. Yeah. Um, the, because the, and the polls have, are basically the, uh, the first and second week of, of May, and we're now just a little bit past that. Uh, I, I always studiously avoid using the term predict because predict talks about the future. This is not what necessarily what June 7th is going to look like. It's what May 10th and 11th and 8th and 9th and so forth look like. And indeed, the public opinion may well have moved beyond that. We'll know in a few days when some more polls come out. Love to talk to you about it as that happens. Barry, thanks so much for this today. We'll look forward to that. Barry Kay, of course, uh, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, and check that out. Listen, if you want to get some, some questions answered uh, in your own mind about what's going on and what some of these numbers actually mean, uh, it's called the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy. Just Google that, and uh, they'll give you the latest numbers there and some analysis. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We uh, wanted to talk, maybe dovetail on our conversation about the uh, provincial election on June the 7th, and who becomes the next premier of this province is going to have a very large impact, not just uh, right across the province, but here in Hamilton, because of one particular issue. And that, of course, is, is LRT, the Light Rail Transit Project. Now, I know that uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, filed his papers for re-election earlier this week, as he said he would. That's really no surprise to anybody. But uh, during uh, the ensuing uh, media conference, he mused that uh, he didn't think LRT was going to be 
the big issue in the upcoming municipal election? Well, I beg to differ, and I think a lot of Hamiltonians do, because if Doug Ford becomes the premier, it's a whole different scenario. And that's because of that promise that Ford made that, hey, you guys, you know, if you don't want LRT, we'll just give you the billion dollars and you can spend it. Uh, as you will, on transit or infrastructure, whatever the case might be. Joining us to talk about this is John Best, a publisher of the Bay Observer. John, always a welcome guest on the program. How are you this morning, sir? I'm well, Bill. Good. Beautiful spring day. Oh, lovely day. Uh, I'm just looking out there thinking and wondering whether or not there's ever going to be an LRT line going to go in front of our radio station here on Main Street at Longwood. Uh, if Doug Ford becomes the premier, I'm not so sure. Well, it's not only Doug Ford, but uh, as as we talked about earlier, I, I listened carefully to some comments that Andrea Horvath made uh, about a week ago, and I'm, uh, and in fact, she made them on on CHML um, among other places, and I'm pretty sure I heard her say something to the effect uh, that she would, yes, uh, if council wanted LRT, she would support funding it. But then there was uh, kind of drifted off into something about, uh, you know, wh- whatever transit council wants. So I'm paraphrasing, so I don't want to uh, take it too far. But I certainly s- thought I heard a little bit of wiggle room on her part uh, that, that she might even contemplate another form of transit. Well, and, and we both know that with the election coming up in just a few weeks in June, that, uh, that the leaders are all going to be tripping over themselves trying to garner support. So they, I can understand that there might be a little obfuscation here. But but nonetheless, I guess the you know the local politicians, John, those being at the city council level, are all saying, well, it depends on what happens at the province. In fact, it really depends on what happens in the municipal election in October. Uh, because, right. <laughs> because as we've talked about before, the support for LRT in this council is about a mile wide and about half an inch thick. And uh, depending on what happens on June 7th, uh, I would consider and I would suggest that probably most of the people on council are going to change their vote. Well, uh, first of all, it isn't going to take that many changed votes because uh, with the new council, as you well know, it, it's now we're back to a simple majority deciding issues, not a three-quarters, uh, two-thirds vote uh, situation. So, you're, you know, it's, uh, I think the vote last time was uh, 10 to 5. Uh, I think I've heard all three, or at least two of the three, who switched in the last uh, election suggesting that, uh, you know, this would be a game changer if Ford indeed uh, is prepared to fund uh, other forms of infrastructure. So, yeah, I, you know, to say that it's, uh, it's a done deal, we're in implementation mode, uh, first of all, with regard to that, I mean, I don't know how many times council asked and about off-ramps and we're told that the final final off-ramp is going to be the uh that uh, presentation of a uh of a costing formula which will only happen after a successful bidder is picked. So if you look at the calendar, the way things are stacking up right now, um the RFP is uh you know, we're not sure when that's going to be issued. Uh, the, the best word I hear from uh, sources at Queen's Park is uh, there's not likely to be um, uh, any kind of an awarding of a contract until late next year, uh, which or mid to late next year, which is a full year from now at least. So be a new council uh, with a new mandate and maybe uh, a change at Queen's Park. So I don't know where we get that we're in implementation mode and let's move on to other issues. That just doesn't 
doesn't fly. Well, I think the mayor would like to th- think that that's what's going to happen because he's been a, an ardent supporter of this project right from the get-go, although uh, there was some some uh, some fluttering, I think, there in the mass f- last election, frankly, because if you remember the three main candidates for mayor last election, uh, you had Brian McCaddy, who was very much in favor of LRT. You had Brad Clark, who'd rather have bus rapid transit, and, and, and Fred Eisenberger, the candidate at that point, uh, said, well, let's study it. You know, I'll, I'll appoint a citizens panel, et cetera, et cetera, which never happened, actually, because the money came in from the province. So, but now he's become an ardent supporter now that the money is, is being committed to this thing. But uh, he'd love for this to be an on issue. But the fact of the matter is, is if you look at right now, uh, even if most of the people that are on this council get reelected, there's maybe one or two changes here simply for a couple of reasons that we'll get into in a second. But you've got the mayor who's an ardent supporter, and the only other votes I think you can count on if you're pro-LRT are the councillors from wards one, two, and three, and possi- and four, obviously. That's not enough to carry the day. No, it's not. I Every, mean, everybody uh, else will bail. As I mentioned in my commentary, John, they've already written there, I've heard from the people and I'm changing my vote. They're, those speeches are in their bottom drawer now. They're just waiting for June 8th to actually make that statement public. Well, and they're still waiting, frankly, for somebody else to bail them out, uh, whether it's the province with a new regime or whatever. Uh, my view is that... that uh, certainly from the standpoint of this any publication i'm going to ask every single councillor before the election uh, where they stand by that time we'll know who's in charge at queen's park and uh if it is mr ford or even if it's uh, miss horvath we'll have to obviously press her a little further on the issue but i hear some flexibility there but i'm going to uh, to the best of my ability make sure that every single councillor declares their intention on this issue, and I suspect other media will be doing exactly the same thing. So for the first time in a long time, uh, you know, I see this as a third, not only as an issue, but kind of a third rail type of issue, uh, uh, very, uh, very much the defining issue in the upcoming municipal campaign. The mayor's position, he's got nowhere to go. He's, He's staked so much on LRT that he has no wiggle room, in, in my view, on it, so he's doubling down. Uh, in essence, uh, as they say in the American uh, TV talk shows, he's playing to his base. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, so I think it's pretty clear where, where he's going to be. And let's see what uh, what other candidates will have to say. Well, and you know they're going to get an earful. I mean, when they start knocking on doors, which I, I assume is going to be after Labor Day, at least in earnest anyway, uh, I'll, I'll refer back to the surveys, because there have been some surveys done about this, and the only strong support, as we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, even among the populace, not just on council, but among the populace, is downtown. And and in, in Stony Creek, in Welland, or Welland, in... They don't want it in Welland. No. Waterdown, I was thinking of. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not big in Welland either, for that matter. But just about every other area. I mean, the only outside councillor, the only rural, quote-unquote, councillor that backed this was Lloyd Ferguson, and and F- Councillor Ferguson even told us on this program a couple of weeks ago that he's going to give it uh, more consideration now. If the money's going to be there anyway, he's not so sure if he's going to be supportive of this. So, I, you know, that one's gone. And he may not even run again. It's, we don't know whether he's going to run for re-election. Right. So, and, and, and you know darn well that as these people go knocking on doors, that's what they're going to hear. You support this thing as if you don't, you're not going to get my vote. Or, you, hey, you, you vote for that and, you know, I'm gone. You're gone. This, this, is, this is still a very passionate issue for people. It is, and you know, and I've talked to. There's door knocking going on right now with the provincial election, yeah. and I've talked to some candidates, and um, and and certainly in the mountain and suburban wards, they're getting LRT at the door 
uh, as an issue. So it's it's a well. There's an interesting issue. anomaly about that, John. Having gone through the process myself a few times, as you did, uh, when you start knocking on doors, they don't care who you are or what you're running for. They just want to vent about the whatever's bothering them. Uh, I can remember running for city council a number of times, and the number one issue at the door was the teacher strike. Well, that had nothing to do with the city, but they wanted to talk to somebody in elected office and couldn't get a hold of Premier Harris, so you know what? I'm going to give you both barrels. And I'm sure that's happening with these people now about LRT. Yeah, they're, well, but also the province in this instance does have a role. Sure they do, yeah. It it, it actually is a, a, you know, it's an issue on two levels. So, no, it's going to be an issue. I suspect it's going to be almost the issue uh, in the upcoming campaign. And uh, it's uh, it's certainly, I I think the the only poll that I've seen that I have any reliance on is the one that the councillors paid for uh, because it was done by a reputable firm. It did a proper large, large sample. It it was a, a sample large enough that you could break it down by districts and regions. And that poll, uh, if you just took the raw numbers, it was 60-40 against. Then they did some weighting because they said, well, we, you know, we don't get enough millennials who don't have landlines, but we also know about the voting intentions of millennials quite often. So I'm not sure that the, you know, they ended up with 48-40, to 40, but I'm not sure the 60-40 to 40 wasn't a more accurate reflection of the people that will actually vote in the next municipal election. Uh, Dave is listening to our conversation. Uh, email bkelly then 100chml.com. Asks, uh, what if uh, Mayor Eisenberger gets reelected? Uh, if he does, Dave, uh, John, you can weigh in on this too. Uh, he's, he can beat the drum and be the most ardent supporter for LRT uh, if he does get reelected, but he's only one vote on a 16 member council. That's right. And, and uh, you know, it's, it, the, with our weak, what we call the weak mayor system, which uh, is not a personal comment, it's just the system. Um, and, and you see it in Toronto as well, uh, a mayor can very easily get isolated by his council. We've seen it, I think, uh, three or four times uh, in, in the last three or four councils. Certainly, uh, you know, Bob Rutina found himself up against a, a council that, uh, that often he was at loggerheads with, and uh, to a certain extent prior to that, Deanny, and for that matter, Fred himself uh, on issues like the stadium and so on. So it's you know uh, you can you can support whatever you want to support, but uh, uh, councillors uh, you know self-preservation is numero uno, and I think that if they see a way out of uh, you know I, I look at the LRT thing and say that part of the reason the council went for it last May in, in, in to a certain degree was the only way that you could make the thing fly was through an element of coercion. Uh, you know he had to mount a get all kinds of third parties and some of the big donors in the city to uh, really beat up some of these councillors to get them to change their vote. And, you know, if that's what you have to resort to and then a back door is opened and sunlight comes in, uh, no wonder they're changing their votes. Yeah, but more than one of them. As a matter of fact, most of them who who we thought were on the fence or opposed to it that came around and voted in favor of, of that, that particular LRT vote said specifically it's because they couldn't turn their back on a billion dollars. Uh, and a project like that. They didn't say because they supported the project. They didn't say, I've seen the light. I do see the economic upswing. They didn't say any of that stuff. They just said, I'd look like an idiot if I turned my back on a billion dollars. Well, if they've got an out clause that says you're going to get the money anyway, then why should they support it? Or, you know, I mean, I look at the money issue, and, and the, the one area where I do agree with with the mayor is when he said that, you know, if, if, if we got 
the, the billion dollars and we could do anything we want with it, what would stop other municipalities from lining up? Uh, and, and I think there's legitimacy to that point of view. What I would say, though, is that even if you use the formula that was, uh, that, that's being applied to all the communities that are not in the GTAH, and, and this question was put to our treasurer uh, a year or two ago, what would we in Hamilton be entitled to uh, because the other communities outside the GTA are being allowed to use the money for different kinds of in- infrastructure, including transit. So without that, what would we be entitled to? And the answer came back that based on population, we'd be in for about five to $600 million. So I think that's the number uh, that, that, we can, that we're in, you know, if you want to use the word entitled. I think that's the amount that we're absolutely entitled to. And that would certainly allow us to do a significant upgrade of transit. And then I think if it's not LRT and it's BRT, then you could also argue that some of the, some of the major corridors that, that those buses would run on uh, would also need upgrades. So you'd be back into improving some of our road infrastructure. So, you know, I, I think there's all kinds of ways of approaching this thing, and uh, we're far from the final answer yet. Yeah, but your point there about the money is very germane to this discussion. And I, I raised this the day that Doug Ford made that promise uh, when he was in Hamilton. Uh, you, you can have the billion dollars anyway. Uh, if, if the people that are thinking there's going to be a huge swing with the LRT vote are hanging their head on a campaign promise, uh, I got a bridge they might want to buy too. And, and I'm, that's, it's not just against Doug Ford. It's anybody that wants to get elected, they all make these kind of commitments. I know darn well, and I think, you know, mark this on the calendar, folks, May 16th, on June the 9th or 10th or something, whoever becomes the next premier is going to say, you know what, we've just looked at the books. Oh, my God, that's a mess. I, we, we, you know what, all bets are off. We're just going to have to cut back on everything. And I'm not so sure Hamilton's going to get much of anything out of this thing. So, now, obviously, if Kathleen Wynne becomes the premier, and that looks like it's a, a dwindling uh, aspect by uh, daily now, the way the numbers are starting to look. So we're either going to have Doug Ford or, going to, or, or, or Andrea Horvath as the premier. But they're going to see that this is going to read worse than a Stephen King novel when they start looking at some of the numbers here. And I don't know that they're going to be able to keep up to the commitments, even if they want to. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to deliver that kind of money. It, 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 there's no question we're going to get that that scenario. Uh, we've just looked at the book. It's like when the when you take your car into the garage and the mechanic uh, comes out and tells you, "God, I've never seen anything like this," and you just know you're in for big bucks. Uh, but I, I also think um, you know there's a difference between capital investment and and program investment. And uh, even though uh, some of these programming uh, promises that are being made by all the parties uh, are, are not properly costed, um, when it comes to infrastructure, you're looking at issuing bonds, you're looking at 30-year payback. Uh, so it, I know you know from a household standpoint, you look at it and say, how can we be borrowing billions and still running deficits, but there is a difference between long-term capital investment. They, they may well find that that is the better use of money, quite frankly, because it does have a lasting benefit. Some of this program stuff, I think, is going to be very hard to fund, um, especially, uh, you know, where uh, I think uh, Ford has talked about uh, eliminating the uh, cap-and-trade for carbon, which is going to take, uh, you know, a few billion out of the equation on the income side. So there's a lot of that to be figured out. 
But I still think it does not preclude, I, I think the commitments to Toronto, huge commitments for transit in Toronto have been made, and I don't think they'll be withdrawn by any, any of the parties. So I think from that, it means we get something here. Uh, quick uh, on on Twitter here. Quick one from Scott, uh, who's listening to the show at CHML Bill Kelly on Twitter, says if this city does not want to plan for the future, why should I live here? This council has proven time and again they cannot handle our city's future. Whether it was the stadium and now LRT, can we not move forward and have some forward thinking just once? If not, I'm gone. Uh, and and I understand the frustration that Scott's articulating there. But here's the thing, John. This is an election year, and I'm not suggesting that, that the people that we elect to city council are not dedicated and they don't have some vision. Some do. But the number one priority for 99.9% of them between now and October 22nd is going to be get reelected. And what do I have to say? What do I have to do to get the maximum number of votes? And their argument's going to be, well, I can't do anything for you if I don't have the job again. So <laughs> they're going to yep. fudge on a few things. It's going to happen. You better be ready for that. Well, and, and to the tweet that you just uh, referenced, um, you know, there are many who would argue that a, that a hard rail system is far from being cutting edge or tomorrow's technology, that if anything, it, it could be argued that it's yesterday's technology. Uh, the city of Toronto has just purchased 30 battery-powered buses, and they're experimenting with that, with that sort of an issue. And... Uh, you know, that's there, there's a there's a whole school of thought out there that says, uh, uh, you know, hard rail infrastructure as we move into the first quarter of the 21st century is maybe not all that modern, and really it's kind of a look backwards. Um, you know, there's the new technologies, uh, hydrogen technology, which is obviously not as far advanced as as battery technology, but you know, here's a city in in a cold part of North America that thinks it's worth investing in 30 battery-powered buses. So, you know, let's have a look at that. Yeah, well, the, the end line here is the debate is not over as much as some people would like Far it to be. It. John, thanks yep. so much for this. I always appreciate the time. My pleasure. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Finance Minister Bill Morneau uh, just had what he called a special meeting with an important announcement. This all has to do with the Kinder Morgan Pipeline Project that is supposed to be being built, of course, in British Columbia. Uh, the uh, premier of that province, John Horgan, has already said, no, it's not going to happen, and he's trying to throw roadblocks up. There are already protesters there already. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on the uh, the federal government to get this thing done. The prime minister was in Calgary the other day uh, talking to business leaders, and the message they gave him was just build the damn thing, would you please? Uh, so Bill Morneau gets up there today and uh, makes some announcements with some interesting twists to this whole thing. Trying to make some sense of this, let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. And I just I just finished watching that press conference. Um, very interesting to watch it, for sure. The word that kept coming up was indemnify, right. uh, which I think, uh, let's, let's cut to the quick here. That means subsidize, doesn't it? Um, well, that could be one word for it. It could also be an investment. So here's... Let's, let's just kind of take people back again. This is a pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, to be built from roughly uh, the Edmonton area down south towards Vancouver, and then from Vancouver 
Either oil could be shipped into boats there or it could be sent further down into the United States. There already is a pipeline in that area. Trans Mountain is not a new pipeline, but it's full. It's operating at 100% capacity, and there's even more oil that wants to be transported. Right now it's being transported by train cars, so the thinking was let's twin that pipeline, let's build a second parallel pipeline right beside it, and then that would allow that oil to move. Uh, This pipeline proposal has received all of the environmental assessments that were necessary. It received approval from the B.C. government. Granted, it was under the Christie Clark regime, but nonetheless, that's the operating government of the day. It and by the way, just to remind people, that was not a rubber stamp either. That took some heavy-duty oh, negotiations. 158 uh, restrictions and, and things that had to be done. I mean, these, these were well-thought-through uh, plans that they had there. It received uh, uh, British Columbia approval. It then uh, received federal approval. And you might remember that was a day, for instance, that uh, the Trudeau government did not approve a pipeline for liquefied natural gas, what was known as the Northern Gateway Pipeline. That did not get approved that day. So why isn't it being built? That's really the question. And so the the problem seems to be in British Columbia that uh, today the Premier, Mr. Horgan, is not issuing permits. He's just not, not giving them the permits they need to build some cities are not doing this, some other people are not doing this, but what uh, today's announcement from Minister Morneau was that he wanted to reassert that this is an absolutely constitutional thing, and in fact all these, uh, uh, shall we call them roadblocks that are being put up, are unconstitutional, and they plan to fight that. The problem with that kind of a statement is that it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to start building right away. So to keep Kinder Morgan interested, and you might remember Kinder Morgan, this is the private sector group who are supposed to be building Trans Mountain. They said if they didn't get a clear sense of this direction by May 31st, which is roughly two weeks from now, they would be pulling out of the project. So apparently, this is what uh, the minister shared, is that he personally and his staff have been meeting with Kinder Morgan on almost a day-to-day basis to try to keep the project alive. They believe in its value for Canada, the jobs that would be created, the markets that would be created for Canadian oil. So to keep Kinder Morgan interested, the word they used was indemnify. And they said, in essence, if you are going to have costs incurred because of uh, intergovernmental problems, you shouldn't have to bear those, and also you shouldn't have to resolve those. So we're going to take that on to ourselves. The federal government says we are going to try to clear all the hurdles for you, and if there are any costs that get associated with this, we are going to indemnify you, we're going to reimburse you. Now, many reporters then tried in the question and answer period to put a dollar sign on this. Well, just how much money are we talking about here? And in fairness to the minister, he doesn't know what it's going to cost because he doesn't know how fast he can clear those hurdles. So uh, some have suggested it costs $50,000 a day every day that this thing is delayed. So if it's two weeks, well, okay, it's you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. If it's uh, a year, it could be obviously millions and millions of dollars. And then the other thing that many of them were trying to figure out, well, what does this form of indemnification mean? Are you simply writing a check to a for-profit business? And he opened the door that it could also represent uh, an investment, that rather than just giving them a check and saying best of luck, they might take an equity stake. But he also points out these are negotiations that are now continuing to go forward over the next two weeks so that by May 31st this will all be resolved. I think the major reason he did the press conference today was, one, to respond to people who've said, where are you? You seem to be vacant at the table, federal government. You don't seem to be involved. You seem to have left this up to the premiers. 
and also to send a signal to the private sector that if this government says we are approving something, we are approving something, and we're trying to clear the hurdles. But what it wasn't, Bill, and, and then I'll let you get in with a question, yep, yep. What, what it wasn't was uh, a, a saying, well, it's going to start tomorrow. There's going to be a shovel in the ground tomorrow. They actually haven't cleared any hurdles. It's just a promise that they will do so as fast as they can. But none of the stuff that was said today, indemnification, subsidize, whatever word you want to use, that's not going to move the B.C. government. Well, no, uh, I don't think it will. So uh, clearly the question then comes up is, well, fine, this is all well and good. Appreciate. Essentially what Morneau was saying to Kinder Morgan is the fight's going to go on here. Just send us the bill. (laughs) Yeah, well, that might be part of it, but it's not actually Kinder Morgan's fight now. It's a fight between the Well, let me ask you about that because that was one of the interesting twists that I got out of this is that Morneau said that this this offer, this indemnification, was transferable if somebody wants to take over the project. Now, I got a couple of questions about that. First of all, who would do that, uh, knowing the, the headaches that are caused by this? And does that not send a message that Kinder Morgan's already said we're, we're out of here and, and he's trying to keep them? In other words, he's trying to sweeten the pot to keep them there? Well, I think uh, the answer to both those questions is yes. Let me, let's go with the first one. Who would be interested in doing this? Well, there are other pipeline players out there, most notably, say, Enbridge and TransCanada pipelines. Uh, 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 so what he has said, you're absolutely right, we are going to indemnify Kinder Morgan, but if for whatever reason Kinder Morgan does decide to walk away, we still believe in the value of this project, and we would indemnify anyone else who wants to step forward. Now, I don't know quite legally how they do that, because it strikes me if Kinder Morgan walks away, you're back to square one, and you'd have to repeat all those environmental assessments. But maybe there would be a way for them to some sort of buy the project from Kinder Morgan and thus buy all the approvals and just move on from there. But this, again, was a signal that said, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to get into this and, and support any company that's prepared to take this risk. It, it is really quite unusual that this is a, basically a blank check indemnification uh, and does speak volumes, I think, about how much they want to see this go forward and how much they also want to send a signal to Alberta, not to BC necessarily, but to Alberta. Remember, that is not a liberal stronghold by any stretch of the imagination. There's an NDP government in place there, but it's an NDP government which has been an ally to the federal government on things like climate change and carbon taxes, and I think they, they really want to send a strong signal that they aren't absent from these discussions. But what we haven't heard is the all-clear and, and that would be really nice to see Mr. Horgan step up and say, okay, I'm now on board because, thank you, federal government, you've given me a new bridge in Vancouver or something like that. Yeah, but he's running the risk. I mean, let's get into the politics of this. Uh, if Horgan does that, he, has, he runs the risk of losing the Green Party support, which have put him in office in the first place, and that could actually trigger an election out there. It could. It could. Now, I think there, you know, the, the, the risk of having that election would be, well, what did he get for giving this up? And if he felt he already had a lot of momentum and he got something wonderful from the government, and by the way, given today's statement, it's an inevitability that it was going to be built. So rather than me dragging my feet, hey, I got something for this. Rather than sitting back and letting them build it, because I protested, I got something. Now go out. I think I think you actually take that to an election. And by the way, if the Greens forced a snap election, which cost people money, it could very well come back to haunt them as well. Uh- this this idea about you know let's ma- say another company is going to come over you and I are going to get form a partnership we'll we'll take this over because yeah. this federal money and Premier Notley from Alberta has already said they might pony up a little bit of money here too but the, but doesn't Kinder Morgan already own that pipeline I mean they're basically building it side by each here 
Uh, you know, how, how do you do that? Do you break up that partnership? Does Kinder Morgan sell the original pipeline to the new uh, company if, in fact, there is another company? Yeah, that's a very that's a very key question, Bill. Uh, I don't think they would sell the pipeline. They don't want to sell the pipeline. It's actually a very profitable pipeline for them. Remember, it's operating at 100% capacity. And, in fact, there are so many people who want to ship oil, they can't get into the pipeline. So that's driving the train tracks. So I think the question then becomes, would they, in abandoning the project, give a right-of-way to someone to build a parallel project right beside it? But I think you also ask, you know, are they trying to put pressure on Kinder Morgan? I think the answer is yes. Remember, Kinder Morgan is an American company. It's based in Texas. And perhaps it's used to doing business a certain way in Texas. And it's a little different way here in Canada. And so, look, you know, you've got to have a little patience with us. We're not quite the Texas oil people. But, you know, we are committed to somebody doing the project. And if you don't want to see somebody moving next door to you, you might want to stay at the table. And frankly, I think a financial indemnification, if I was in the private sector operating this, that's going to give me great confidence that says, look, I'll just, I'll just keep a running tally of the losses, and as long as you're prepared to write checks, I'm happy to hang around. But is that going to attract Kinder Morgan? I mean, the easiest path for this thing to get done at this stage is to keep Kinder Morgan in the game. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that, and I think that's why they're prepared to do the indemnification. If if the reason you're walking away are these delays, cost overruns, what have you, and at some point, by the way, Bill, if you have enough cost overruns, then your project isn't commercially viable. You're you're just throwing good money after bad. So uh, the fact that somebody says you give us those, you give us those losses, and you just focus on the key project, that would keep me interested. But it wouldn't keep me interested forever. So clearly what's also going on behind closed doors, and many times when Mr. Morneau was pressed for a, a detail, he would say, oh, well, that's still part of the negotiations. I can't talk about those today. Clearly the other side of this is, all right, indemnifications aside, how do we get started? Where do we put the shovel in the ground first? How do you get us a permit? If you say this is Canadian responsibility and that the Alberta government is being irresponsible, that's lovely, but I need a permit. Get me a permit. And I think that's the other part of the negotiations we're going to hear about over these next two weeks. Okay, now we've talked about the politics of this, certainly the business, and, and we don't know the dollar signs yet, but we know there's going to be a lot of them. The reality here, though, is that this thing has gone through all these approvals, as you already yep. mentioned and reminded us, Marvin. Uh, they've got all this stuff stacking in a drawer. They say, you know, we've crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's on all this stuff. There's a lot of pressure right now from Alberta and from the business community to, to the prime minister to say, look, you've got the side, you're on the side of the angels here. Just get this thing built. Get those protesters out of there. Ignore what Horgan is saying and just build it. Can he do that? Yeah, so let me break down into two chunks. So the protesters, people have a right to protest anything they want, but they actually can't stop the construction. So the protesters are a nuisance, a, a pain in the neck, so to speak, but they're not really what the ones that are causing the problems. The problem is that the Kemen got legal building permits to put shovels in the ground, to connect pipes together, what have you. Now those uh, lack of permits are coming from two sources. One is a, a municipal government, so there are actually cities and jurisdictions like that who are not giving the permits, and then the province who are not giving permits. So now the question is, how do you motivate them? seems to me what you have to do is either um, uh, just simply run over them and issue federal permits that supersede those rights, or you're going to have to have some sort of a court case which hasn't begun, and you and I know that court cases, once they begin, can sometimes have a multi-year life of their own. So he's got to find something fast. And, and this, and in fairness, you know, I'm not even sure this is Mr. Morneau's concern. He's the finance minister. This leadership really has to come from Justin Trudeau himself, the prime minister. 
what what can you do to actually get those permits issued? If he could get them issued in the next couple of weeks, then I'd say this project's a go for sure. I just don't know what you do legally to, or if you say the federal government's rights trump municipal rights and provincial rights, and, and apparently they're on solid constitutional ground, he, he's got to flex that muscle, but he doesn't seem to pull that last part of the trigger just yet. But uh, there's a politics uh, side to this as well. We were just talking about the LRT issue and how the um, you know, election uh, could actually sway some people in council here to switch their votes. Yep. Same thing's happening here that we, we tend to forget because of the, the municipal election, the provincial election going on here this year. There's a federal election next year, and the Liberals have a foothold in British Columbia. They've got some support there. Uh, and and I don't know, they, they have a whole lot in Alberta right now, but I mean, uh, the Prime Minister and those people that are sitting as, as Liberal members out there are thinking, you better get this right, because I don't want to be unemployed in 2019. Well, in fact, I think this is why they're trying to do this now. This project, as it's being constructed, is going to have uh, 15,000 jobs spread between British Columbia and Alberta, so the, and these are good-paying jobs, good construction jobs, uh, well-paying jobs. It's actually a relatively fast project, Bill. This pipeline, if they were to start on June 1st, could be operational in 2020. So with a federal election in the fall of 2019, if you could show the pipeline getting constructed with the promise of more good stuff in just a few months, um, th- this would be, uh, I-, I think, a real election victory. But on the other side, let's just be clear, too, Mr. Horgan's not going down quickly. Just um, last Friday, he got former uh, Vice President of the United States Al Gore to weigh in on this. Al Gore, who's seen as a friend of Justin Trudeau's and a friend of our, our Green Prime Minister, saying this is the worst project ever for Canada, and it's dirty oil, and you should never build this sort of thing. Again, there's no sign that Mr. Horgan is backing down. I, I just don't know how you break this logjam, and today's press conference didn't move that part of it along very far. Not at all. Marvin, thanks as always. Appreciate the clarity here. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.